You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Frank Marshlack. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB Assistant Program Director Christine Brackenhoff spoke with Dr. Allison Case, a family medicine provider based in Indiana. Dr. Case is also an abortion provider and leads the Indiana chapter of the Reproductive Health Access Project. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, a 20-year-old gunman used a rifle to kill three people and injure two others before he was shot dead at a mall in Greenwood, Indiana. But first, your local headlines. At the Ellettsville Town Council meeting on July 11th, Town Manager Mike Farmer asked the council to approve a memorandum of understanding with Envision Ellettsville. So anyway, uh, we, you know, we've heard from the community, we've heard from the chamber, we've heard from staff, uh, you might even heard from me, and um, we want to move forward with some of the Envision Ellettsville plan, actually all of it. Uh, what is amazing for me, and what I think is excellent timing, is that the Envision Ellettsville process um, follows and parallels the original comp plan that we already have. It parallel and follows um, for the last three years everything I've heard from the citizens and what they want. We should do this. If we had a million dollars, we ought to do that. Blah, blah, blah. So um, then when, when we do the ambition ELSO process, uh, all these things just uh, came back to us and and, and, and the plan itself is truly a community vision plan. So uh, there are a lot of things in the plan that are um, what I'd call capital projects, everything from building trails, to building new parks, to uh, having a task force to uh, help us implement uh, transportation plans for the future, uh, things uh, like zoning and uh, code upgrades, um, all of these things have been um, brought to light and been put on paper, and we, we want to move forward. Um, so, uh, with our memorandum of understanding, uh, we will uh, join forces with uh, the Chamber and Main Street, and um, we will channel some of their vision and things they might want. Uh, we will channel everything in our comprehensive plan and the projects that uh, I'd like to do, the projects that the staff has uh, talked about working on, and uh, we will uh, utilize the memorandum of understanding to have a, an agreement, and uh, it'll allow us to move forward in a orderly way. Town attorney, Darla Brown, went over the documents the council received and walked them through the various subjects. But in any event, um, the first two documents are 
the resolution the town council passed back in May approving the Baker Tilly ARPA plan for the town. So that's the first two documents and that's pages one through eight. And I included that um, as a segue to the um, Envision Ellettsville plan so you could see the overlap between the ARPA plan and the Envision Ellettsville plan. So our plan, the town's plan for ARPA funds is flood remediation and grants. So there's overlap between what we wanna do and what Envision Ellettsville wants to do. So page nine and the next few pages are directly from the hard copy of the Envision Ellettsville vision plan that Main Street and the Chamber put together. So this was, these are documents that were presented to the community at the meeting here back, I think, on May 17th. So page nine is a proposed organizational structure which shows the town council at the top, the Envision Ellettsville group is in the middle, and then, at least according to the MOU, what will happen is Envision Ellettsville will determine their own structure. Um, whatever they think is best. And again, my thought is that they've done a good job so far, so let them continue to do what they've been doing. They pick their boards, they meet as often as they want, they decide who's gonna be on the boards, and then occasionally they come to town council whenever they think it's appropriate and uh, make a pitch or um, suggest ideas, but that's up to Envision Ellisville. Councilmember Pamela Samples expressed concern that they received 35 pages to read and suggested that any vote be tabled until the next meeting to give everyone time to go through the new information. She asked Farmer if there would be any consequences for postponing the vote. Farmer said that he didn't see a reason to postpone. Well, if, if the board wants to do that, that's fine. But um, we've been on this path for a long time and uh, putting things off uh, is not how you how you have progress. And uh, the staffs looked at all this information. Darla's vetted it, and um, I think we're ready to move forward. Council member Dan Swafford added he was concerned that they don't have enough staff in the planning department to start the Envision Ellettsville projects. Council member Scott Odham said that although he agreed with Samples and Swafford that he didn't want to vote on any of the finer details, he would like to agree to the overall partnership with Envision Ellettsville. To begin this entire process, there's no action taking place beyond that that commits the Planning Commission to do anything, that commits us to do anything, because there's multiple times in this document that says that the Town Council has ultimate authority to yay or nay any project that comes forward. So right now, the only thing we're doing is selecting a partner to move forward with. So this has, and I understand what you're saying, Dan, and I agree with you, and I agree with you, Pam, as well. If you're going to digest the entire document, that would be one thing. Here is just simply the continuation and selection of a partner group to move forward with, as opposed to uh, we're going to do everything in this book exactly as it says. Because like you, I've got a couple questions on some of the paragraphs that I think I would like to see reworded a little bit better but that doesn't affect this agreement that we're signing tonight. That affects the minutia that comes six months down the road or a year down the road. President of Ellettsville Main Street, Lisa Sisko, asked the council to approve the MOU and explained that they wanted it to be voted on at this meeting instead of tabling the vote. 
And we ha we had the May 17th event. There's June 17th and July 17th. We're almost 60 days beyond that. And we've kind of thought, what do we have to show for it? So we felt like we were under pressure to present something to you. We also knew in the meetings is that the plan commission's not slated to meet until August, which would be another month. So we feel like we have owed you uh, to get something quickly. So I'm sorry that it seems like we're throwing it at you, um, but we have been working really hard to present something that makes a lot of sense. And we've broken it down into pieces. The town council has all of the authority, all of the delegation powers, uh, Main Street and the chamber. We're not responsible for any of the f decisions as far as what gets done, what doesn't get done. What we want to do is share with you the ideas from the community to present it to you as recommendations for your consideration. So I hope at least we can go forward with a memorandum of understanding. It's a memorandum. It's not a contract. It's to give an idea so anyone can see it. A memorandum starts out with a lot of whereases. It's a historical document kind of showing how did we get here at this moment in time and how are we going to go forward. We've had a positive relationship in the past and we want to keep it going forward that way. And we, the plan, when you read it, um, if you haven't already, and we hope that you have, it calls for task forces, which is also representation from a lot of community members to get involved so that you're always getting some feedback and suggestions. And uh, Kevin was a part of it. Um, and we, we know that with the planning department, that holds a big piece of what we're going to do in the future. There was at least 47 points in the vision plan that had to do with the comprehensive plan. If we don't get that updated, then we're kind of stuck. We're kind of doing things like what you've experienced as you're making decisions and not having your government uh, foundational documents to support it. Or what we want to do is have that guiding the growth, not coming behind the eight ball, so to speak. And we've seen from, if you've been here for a long time, like a lifetime member of I have, I've seen, you know, a lot of the growth in Ellettsville has been splattered. It's been automotive focus. And now we want to, to be more sensible about it. We're not saying we want to spend a bunch of money. We want to invest in our community, so our kids want to stay here. We want to attract people to live here and to work here and have a place when they come home, they can do things here without having to go somewhere else to spend their dollars and spend their time with their families. So I hope at least we can move forward with that memorandum of understanding. The council voted to approve the memorandum of understanding with Envision Ellettsville with a 302, with Samples and Swafford abstaining due to their concerns about the time constraint. The next Ellettsville Town Council meeting will be held July 25th. A 20-year-old gunman used a rifle to kill three people and injure two others before he was shot dead at a mall in Greenwood, Indiana. During a press conference on Monday, Greenwood Mayor Mark Myers offered words of condolence following the shooting at the Greenwood Mall. Today's not an easy day for the city of Greenwood. Um, Today was very tough. It's, it's been a hard night for our police officers, our firefighters, everyone else involved here today. Um, and I want to thank all those departments for their assistance. Before Chief Isom gets up, I have a few comments I'd like to make. I'll not be able to say anything that's already been said by so many other sites of these mass shootings here in America. I don't want to be among the mayors that has to share these statements. But sadly, I am. I grieve for these senseless killings, and I ache for the scars that are left behind on the victims and on our community. 
Coroner Mike Pruitt identified the four lives lost in the tragic shooting. Um, we have identified four decedents uh, following the incident last night at the Greenwood Park Mall. We have been working uh, jointly with the Marion County Coroner's Office because two of those individuals uh, were transported to Indianapolis hospitals, one of those to Eskenazi and the other one to St. Francis, and then two of those remained at the mall. The Marion County Coroner's Office is handling the autopsies and the investigations of two of the individuals, and we are handling two at our facility. Identify the four individuals. I'll go down the list here. I will put these out for proper spelling, so um, I will get those out to everybody. I've already sent some of those out, but I will get those out. So the first individual that we identified, uh, this individual was at the mall, uh, and we are handling this investigation, Jonathan Douglas Sapirman. Let's say that correctly, Sapirman. Okay, he's age 20 of Greenwood. The next individual, Pedro Pineda, age 56 of Indianapolis, and we are handling that investigation. Next individual, Rosa Miriam Rivera de Pineda, age 37. She is the wife of Pedro, so they are a married couple. That investigation is being handled by the Marion County Coroner's Office. And the last individual is Victor Gomez, age 30, of Indianapolis, and that individual um, is being handled by the Marion County Coroner's Office also. All will be receiving medical examinations that are scheduled for tomorrow. Chief Jim Eisen of the Greenwood Police Department walked through the weapons recovered from the incident, all of which were purchased legally. The weapon used by Mr. Sapirman last night was a Sig Sauer Model 400M 5.56 caliber uh, weapon, uh, rifle. It was purchased on March 8, 2022 here in Greenwood. The second uh, weapon recovered, this was in the bathroom, was a M&P 15 5.56 rifle. It was purchased on March 9, 2021 from a gun store here in Greenwood. Mr. Sapperman also had on his person a Glock 33 357 caliber pistol. The only weapon used by Mr. Sapperman last night uh, was the uh, Sig Sauer Model 400M rifle. Uh, he had multiple magazines and uh, over 100 rounds of ammunition on his uh, person and in his possession. We know that from family members uh, that he has been uh, practicing shooting at uh, Range USA. Uh, the ATF has uh, made contact with Range USA and received uh, records from them that show that he was uh, frequently using their range and purchasing ammunition at that location for the past two years. Uh, we know that he uh, re recently resigned from uh, a warehouse uh, position uh, back in May, and uh, we are we have not confirmed yet. Uh, detectives are serving a subpoena as we speak to uh, Polo Run Apartment Complex uh, to find out if he, in fact, was being evicted. We, uh, we were told by family members that they believed he had received an eviction notice. That has not been confirmed at this time.
Chief Eisen provided a timeline of the shooting and shared details about the bystander who killed the shooter. We know that Mr. Sapperman, through surveillance video, entered the mall at entrance four by the food court at 4.54 p.m. He walks directly to the food court restroom. One hour and two minutes later, he exits the restroom and shoots Victor Gomez outside of the restroom. He then points his rifle into the food court where Pedro and Rosa Pineda were eating dinner and shot both Rosa and Pedro. He then fired several more rounds into the food court, uh, striking a 22-year-old female who is currently recovering from a leg wound at Eskenazi Hospital and a bullet fragment believed to have ricocheted off of uh, a wall um, did strike a 12-year-old female who was running towards exit four uh, in the back. Uh, that was a minor wound treated at the hospital. Uh, they did remove a small piece of metal uh, jacket, uh, most likely from a ricochet. At 5.57 p.m., uh, the shooter was confronted by our Good Samaritan, who I will identify in just a moment. Uh, the Good Samaritan was armed with a pistol and engaged the uh, shooter as he stood outside the restaurant restroom area firing into the food court. The shooter fired several rounds, striking the suspect. The suspect attempted to retrieve ba retreat back into the restroom and fail, fell to the ground after being shot. We recovered 24 223 rifle rounds shot by the suspect and 10 uh, handgun rounds fired by the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, once again, he has authorized us to release his name. He is requesting you give him time to process uh, and, and grieve himself uh, before reaching out to him. His name is Elijah Dickin, and that is spelled E-L-I-S-J-S-H-A, and he resides in Seymour, Indiana. He was at the mall last night with his girlfriend shopping. Authorities said on Monday that there was no clear motive for the shooting. Following the incident, four people were shot, one of which was killed at an unrelated vigil in a park nine miles north of Greenwood. WFHB Assistant Program Director Christine Brackenhoff spoke with Dr. Allison Case, a family medicine provider based in Indiana. She is also an abortion provider and leads the Indiana chapter of the Reproductive Health Access Project. We now turn to that interview. please tell us a bit about your background? Sure. So I'm a family medicine provider, and that means I see everything from newborns to elderly folks. I also deliver babies and do obstetrics care. I'm also an abortion provider. So in Indiana, I cannot provide abortion care as part of my standard family medicine practice. It's something I have to do in a separate clinic, but it is part of my practice, you know, broadly. 
I also lead a group here in Indiana that's part of a national network called the Reproductive Health Access Project. And we're a group of providers and advocates across the state who work on advocacy around access to abortion, miscarriage management, and birth control, among other things. There's some of the things that I do. Yeah, thank you. Can you please tell us about abortion as an element of healthcare? Sure. So abortion has always been a part of healthcare. Whenever you have people managing pregnancy, miscarriage, you have people managing abortions. When I think about providing a full range of reproductive healthcare services, abortion is included in that, just like birth control management is and miscarriage management. I mentioned before, but because of state laws, you know, I can't practice abortions in my everyday job as a family doctor, but it is it's safe, it's necessary. There's no reason besides politics that I should not be able to provide abortion care as part of standard full-spectrum reproductive health care. Before Roe v. Wade was overturned, how would you describe the state of abortion access in Indiana, at least in recent years? Yeah, I would say the state of abortion access in Indiana has been pretty dire for a long time now. So abortion has basically been unaccessible for many people because of all the restrictions that are in place. Some of those include an 18-hour waiting period, which means that if people want to get an abortion, they need to find time to take off in order to go to two visits, uh, which is not medically necessary. That's completely a politically driven restriction. Ultrasounds requirements uh, are in place in Indiana. There's a ban on telehealth services. There are many hoops for minors to jump through if they're seeking abortion services. There are reporting requirements, laws that regulate clinics called trap laws, those make it more difficult for clinics to open and to keep clinics that are open to keep them open. All these barriers are in place and have been in place in Indiana for a long time, and they especially hurt the most marginalized people. So poor people, LGBTQ people, people of color who might for systemic reasons have trouble accessing services in the first place. So the restrictions are you know, they make it physically and practically very difficult to access abortion, but they're also extremely stigmatizing. Many of the laws that exist in Indiana exist only to make people feel guilty and ashamed about their decisions. So one of the laws that's in place is that providers have to read out loud to patients a state-mandated script that includes sentences like, life begins when sperm meets egg. Uh, and we have to walk the patient through a packet with images of the embryo at the stage of development in which they are uh, at. So these laws exist to stigmatize patients. They exist to make abortion a safe medical procedure much more difficult, and it's an unbelievable overreach of state power, the extent to which that's happened in Indiana. Yeah, abortion access has not been easy in Indiana even before this decision came down. How has your experience as a healthcare provider changed since Roe v. Wade was overturned? I've had patients who are scared. They are scared even coming in to see me for their well woman visits or their well adult visits. They're there to ask about birth control. And I've had people verbalize to me that they don't want to be on birth control because they've had bad experiences with hormonal birth control in the past but they're so afraid that they're not gonna be able to access any abortion services that they're looking for help finding out what they should get back on to help prevent pregnancy. 
I've had people verbalize to me, patients verbalize about how worried they are about what's going to happen to people who have ectopic pregnancies or people who have other problems in pregnancy that, you know, make it deadly to continue to carry the pregnancy to term. So that's been, it's heavy and really hard as a provider to try to figure out what are we going to do for people? I mean, I think the bottom line is people are going to die. Like there's going to be delays in care. There's going to be people who don't get the care they need. And it's really, really hard, you know, as a human to deal with that, but, you know, trying to offer people help, I don't have a lot to tell them, you know, we're pretty sure there's going to be a complete abortion ban here soon. And it's people just aren't going to have access to services. I would say that the other thing that I have experienced, I provide telemedicine abortion in New Mexico using a New Mexico license, which I have a physician's license in New Mexico. And we have already been seeing mostly patients coming over from Texas, even before the decision came down because of how restrictive the Texas law has been. Those numbers are going up and I expect that telehealth services in general are going to be more and more important for safe haven states in order to keep the pressure off of in-person clinics who are going to need to take on more appointments for procedural abortions coming from many surrounding states. So I have already taken on more time as a telehealth provider because they're seeing those, we're seeing so many more of those appointments and I expect that that's going to continue. So I think we're you know, we're going to see more use of telehealth to help people get the services they need. What are your concerns about abortion access in Indiana going forward? We know that lawmakers are going to pass a complete abortion ban. They've made that pretty clear. We don't know if there are going to be any exceptions for rape or incest or life of the person carrying the pregnancy. I think what I'm most scared of is just I'm afraid for people's lives. I think people are going to die as a result of this ban being passed. There are lots of scenarios where a pregnant person needs a termination to save their life or to prevent them from mortal danger. And legislators don't know what they're doing. They're not healthcare providers. They don't have the experience to be making these decisions. And yet they're going to pass this ban that's going to impact people's lives in a tremendous way. So I'm I'm most worried about that, you know, the number of people who are going to die and be severely impacted by a complete ban. I think the other question is what happens next. So people who are familiar with this space are really worried about laws coming down the pipeline that will criminalize abortion or charge a person who self-manages their abortion. So someone who, say, gets medications off the internet and then has a complication and presents to an emergency room or hospital, could they then be charged with some kind of uh, felony for attempting an abortion? We're also really worried about fetal personhood laws. These are extremely dangerous. So if a fetus has quote unquote personhood, you can imagine several terrifying scenarios. For instance, a person might be out drinking without knowing that they're pregnant and then miscarry Could they then be charged with murder? You know, these kind of scenarios that are very, very terrifying and dangerous. And then, of course, I think people who have been working in space for a long time, especially after this decision, the Supreme Court decision, worry about all the other privacy rights and whether or not politicians are going to attack, you know, trans rights, which really they already have in Indiana. Are they going to 
attack gender affirming care, birth control access, marriage equality. We don't know where this is going to stop. We always encourage people to contact your legislator, let them know what you are thinking and feeling and that you think this is absolutely ridiculous that they're even considering a complete ban. I think that people should also just be aware of resources that are out there. So there's a website called wayfinder.org where people who might need an abortion can find the closest geographic place to obtain one. There are resources out there for self-managed abortion and self-managed miscarriage that people should you know, try to seek out. It's really hard, I think, just trying to organize as much as possible together to push, push lawmakers and to take part in any public action you can. So there's gonna be protests at the State House on, on July 25th for the special session and as many people as we can get out there showing that this is not what Hoosiers what you know, the more people we can get, the better for that. That was WFHB guest correspondent Christine Brackenhoff speaking with Dr. Allison Case, a family medicine provider based in Indiana. Dr. Case is also an abortion provider and leads the Indiana chapter of the Reproductive Health Access Project. We will learn more about the state's abortion laws following a special session of state lawmakers on Monday, July 25th at the Indiana State House. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.